0: Well, good morning, friends. It is wonderful to be together, to sing, to pray, and to now have this opportunity to uh, turn to Scripture and wonder together about the Word of God. My name is Tracy Bianchi. If I've not met you before, I serve as uh, one of several pastors here on staff in the adult ministry area is, uh, is my team. So uh, before we go any further, I would love to just take a moment and just pray one more time, uh, just to invite God to be with us as we dig into Scripture together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have gifted us with the opportunity to be together today. Thank you that you have given us your word, that we get to study and get to learn um, about what you want us to know from scripture. So Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, um, gift us with wisdom, um, teach us to listen and to learn. And may all that we do and say in this time together bring you glory, the church together said, amen. Well, this week at our house, it was homecoming weekend. And uh, if you are a teenager or are anywhere near a teenager in your life, you would know that homecoming is um, quite an event. Um, It has evolved since I was in high school. Uh, The invitations, the asks to go to uh, go to uh, homecoming, uh, kind of rival uh, almost. Wedding proposals sometimes. Like, I look at what some of these kids do to invite each other to homecoming, and I think about my own engagement. I'm like, ooh, (laughs) like we could have stepped that up a bit. Um, It it now involves uh, teams of friends scheming a certain location where you go and you make the ask, and there's these pithy, cheesy little posters that you've probably seen all over Instagram. For example, one of them in our town was um, a baseball player uh, asked his date. He said, I'm stepping up to the plate to be your homecoming date, right? So I, all this kind of stuff happens. And, um, and then there's flowers involved and in uh, the poster and, you know, all of the things. And uh, this whole thing, in uh, the world of adolescence, plays itself out again at prom. And they're called prom promposals. And there's a whole other round of posters and proposals of sorts. And it's interesting because there's not like a list of rules that you follow when you're asking somebody to homecoming. You don't sign an agreement together, but there's a, an unsaid list of expectations, a commitment of sorts that you make when you either accept an invitation or make an invitation. Um, I won't Change my mind and ask somebody else is probably one of those things. Um, I said yes to you, so I'm not going to change my mind on that and go with somebody else either. Um, There's an understanding that we will take pictures together. We will arrive at the dance together. We may not talk to each other at all at the dance, but we will probably try to leave together as well because that's the right thing to do. We will find some sort of agreement on a tie matching a dress, and we will exchange flowers and boutonnieres, and of course, there's an understanding that our parents will post all of this on Instagram. Our relationships, beyond obviously homecoming, are filled with similar experiences. And we may not go as far as calling them proposals, but there's invitations and assumptions we make. If you think back, or maybe some of you are in a season where you're living with some friends and you've got a pile of roommates or you've got that apartment in college or whatever it is, and you sort of enter into an agreement, can we live together is followed up by a set of agreements that I will try to contain my mess, I will not eat all of your food, I will pay my part of the rent on time, I will not move out without telling you. These are sort of unsaid Expectations, our friends, our relationships have the same thing. I will have your back. I will not tell your secrets. I will answer your texts or your snaps. We will hang out. These are the expectations of relationship. Relationships thrive on honesty and truth, much of which is built through these sort of unstated proposals, agreements. You do this for me, and I will do this for you. And that almost makes our relationships sound cheap, like we've commodified them. So I know there's more to relationships than just I do this for you and you do that for me. But at the basic ground level of many of our relationships, that's the sort of agreement we're signing up for when we spend time with people. And our relationship with God is like this too. We worship a God who is forgiving and loving and gracious. We, of course, have a Savior who died to fulfill our end of a commitment, a covenant agreement that we couldn't fill. We receive abundant grace and forgiveness. God lavishes his love upon us, but our relationship with God is like every other relationship. We have an end of the bargain that we are supposed to hold up. It's why one of the most known and sometimes frustrating passages in Scripture comes to us from James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. If I have faith and I believe in this thing, then my life should be a series of reflections on that. And in scripture, there are defining moments where these sort of relational boundaries, these proposals of sorts, these covenants have been established. At the very beginning of scripture, actually, if you remember in the Garden of Eden, God says to Adam and Eve, you can have all of this. Just don't touch that tree over there. There's boundaries. I'm going to give you this, but you got to do this for me. Later in Genesis with Abraham and Sarah, God says to them, I am going to make you a great nation. Go to where I show you, do what I'm asking you to do there and I will make you into a great nation. If you are just joining us today for the first time, we are actually in week seven now of a journey through the book of Exodus. We come today to Exodus 19 where one of these proposals happens, a conversation between Moses and God's people and a moment in their history where God says, you guys do this and I will do this for you. And this, chapter 19, is the setup for one of the most famous passages in Scripture, which is coming in the next chapter, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, the rules of relationship. So today we pick it up, however, in Exodus 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim... They entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So last week, we learned that after a couple months of distrust and grumbling and anger, the Israelites leave the Red Sea and make their way through the desert for a couple months, and they have now moved so far in that they can't go any further. They're at the base of a mountain. And they had this sort of cyclical relationship with God where they would uh, struggle. They were angry about something. They didn't have what they needed. They didn't have some of the comfort and security they wanted. So they would grumble at God and they would get angry and God would say, okay, I'm going to fix this for you. And then they would say, yay, God, we love you. You fixed it for us. And then they would go on through a couple more incidents, and then they would get frustrated again. And this cycle just keeps repeating itself. It's not really an unfamiliar cycle if we think about it. Most of us are honest. This is sometimes how we feel with God. God, help me. God gives us some comfort or some peace. We're like, yay, I'll love you forever. And then something else happens, right? This is sort of the nature of faith. And so now, after this cyclical um, relationship together, they've come to the base of the mountain, and there's thousands of them there together, and everybody's like, huh, what happens now? There isn't a guidebook for this. There isn't an order of service. There isn't a program. They don't know exactly what's coming next. Moses is the leader, so it's almost as if they're like, Moses, you go ask God what to do. So Moses steps forward and talks to God. Then Moses went up to God, And the Lord called him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. God chooses to talk to his people through Moses. And I think it's safe to say that most of us don't have ongoing, sometimes face-to-face conversations with the God of the universe. We receive messages from God, perhaps, in our prayers, in our quiet moments, maybe in our dreams, through the words and actions of others. Maybe we've experienced something of God in creation. Certainly, we have the Bible. There are plenty of ways we hear from God, but a back-and-forth conversation with God is exceptional, and it was exceptional at that time as well. Moses and God talk like this multiple times, In Exodus 3, actually, God calls to Moses from the burning bush, which that burning bush story is in the exact desert that they find themselves in right now. And they actually have a conversation together. God appears to people multiple times throughout the Old Testament, but God had a unique relationship with Moses. Numbers chapter 12 tells us this. God says, where there are prophets among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to them in visions. I will speak to them in dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house, and with him I speak face to face, clearly not in riddles. In Exodus 33, we're told that God speaks to Moses as one speaks to a friend. And in Deuteronomy 34, we read that, There was none like Moses who knew the Lord face to face. This is an exceptional, extraordinary relationship. So Moses goes up to the mountain and God speaks to him and God says, this is what I want the people to know. Now here's something interesting. He calls them Israel and then he calls them the descendants of Jacob. And sometimes these are just these sort of old Hebrew words that sort of wash over us and we're like, "Mm, I don't know exactly what that means but I'll get to the good part here in a minute. And I just want to stop there for one second, because when we read Israel and descendants of Jacob, we're talking about the same exact group of people. And just how in our culture today, sometimes we use different phrases to mean the same thing. This is what's happening here. We might say the Oval Office, the White House said this, or the President said that, and they all mean the same thing. There's different shades of meaning within them. There's nuances in those distinctions, but they in general mean the same thing. So Israel and the house of and descendants of Jacob are the same thing. The nation of Israel itself is comprised of 12 tribes that descend from the sons of Jacob. Jacob, it's interesting that God chooses to call them the descendants of Jacob. Jacob is a shifty and complex character he creates a lot of chaos in the Old Testament. He is not trustworthy. He steals his oldest brother's birthright at a time in history where that made a big difference in your future. He literally, at one point in time, engages in a physical altercation with God. He's an incredibly complex, difficult-to-understand patriarch. God actually renames Jacob after their struggle and decides Jacob is going to be called Israel. The word Israel means one who wrestles with God. So the image here is God is using this phrase to address the people, this complex, fickle sort of phrase. There were multiple other names God could have decided to use to talk about the people of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, but he chose Jacob, which is very interesting. And then God goes back and decides to continue this conversation and to do so by reminding them of where they've been, as if to say, "Let me take you back now to what we can agree on. I'm going to talk to you, Moses, but this is what I want you to say to the people. you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. you do you remember God is saying, and sometimes we talk like this with people we love, maybe our children, maybe our best friends, our spouses, when we want to unpack for them something significant, maybe something we want to redirect them toward or remind them of. And again, as a parent, I do this. I'm like, you guys know I love you, right? But I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to pitch an idea to you. I'm going to move you in a different direction. But I want to remind you first, you know I love you. You remember what I did for you. Sometimes we say, you know I have your back, but... And so God is sort of saying, remember what I did, we can all agree on this, and then he's going to go forward in a bit and ask something significant of the people of Israel. He says, remember how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And this image of an eagle I think is worth unpacking a little bit here, Uh, the eagle has been an icon of faith in many of our conversations and scriptures, and I'm not looking to flip that on its head, but I want to expand that image for you a little bit. Um, chapters and verses like Isaiah 40, they are the things that make plaques, right? We soar on eagle's wings, many of us have sung of the eagle's wings at funerals and other places like this. In Deuteronomy 32, we have a reference to this same passage. God God speaks, in a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste, this is God speaking of Israel, he shielded him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, eagles stir up their nest, big birds of prey stir up the nest to get everybody moving, to get some of the baby birds out of the nest and flying, an eagle or a bird that hovers over its young that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. Now, I have probably uh, seen Harry Potter a few too many times, but I instantly think of Buckbeak the hippogriff, the magical, kind of cool, stuffed animal, but sort of angry, massive bird from the Prisoner of Azkaban, and Harry flies atop the bird, and they soar across the landscape. And these giant birds of prey, eagles specifically, are found throughout the landscape of our fairy tales, and other books as well. Tolkien writes of massive eagles and the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, and they take flight alongside elves and they rescue Gandalf and Bilbo. In Greek mythology, Zeus, his personal assistant, his messengers, a giant golden eagle in Middle Eastern folklore. There's a giant bird called the rock that appears on a tropical island in the Arabian Nights. Many of you know these stories. If we are not... Intentional, we can easily read something like this and think that God is this giant hippogriff or phoenix rising, soaring through the sky to our rescue. The actual Hebrew word here is nesher. It's a lard bird of prey, possibly translated best as a vulture, The image here is not necessarily one of God soaring through the skies because there have been many people of faith, or anthologists, the people who study birds, who also love the Lord, have tried to make sense of this passage throughout history because the laws of aerodynamics do not allow a bird to fly through the the air with baby birds on its wings. And what really actually happens in the natural world is that these massive birds of prey, be they eagles or vultures, will create nests on precarious cliffs in really high places that are incredibly difficult to reach. And what these birds will most often do is stir up their nest, nudge their young, perhaps, toward the edge of the nest, and then scoop them on their wings and kind of support them as they learn to fly. The image is of the people of God, perhaps, a little bit like the descendants of Jacob, a little bit confused, a little bit mischievous, not always playing by the rules, learning how to fly. The images here are more wobbly, perhaps, something tottering and teetering on the edge, and their wings taking them and holding them together. I carried you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. Again, I think if we are honest, our faith probably feels a little bit more like that. Rare is the moment where I have talked to somebody over my life as a pastor who's talked to somebody about their faith, and they're like, everything's great with God. I feel like I'm soaring through the sky. We feel like these little baby birds, like I've got to hop out of this nest and figure it out. And it's also, it's also an image of our taking steps and our moving forward and God providing rescue and support along the way. Now I've got one more little thing I want to tell you about the bird. I went deep into the hole this week <laughs> on this image. It could be a griffin vulture. And when we hear the word vulture, we think, oh. I don't want a god that looks or acts like a vulture. But here's some interesting information about vultures. They are the highest flying bird. They are known to fly as high as commercial jets, sometimes over 30,000 feet in the air. And they ride an air current when they fly. Rarely do they even flap their wings. They just cruise up there with this gallant, majestic set of wings that can soar by themselves across the sky, but can also come down and scoop up the young. There's an author named Debbie Debbie Blue who writes about this griffin vulture idea. And she says this. She says, I think I might like a majestic and thoughtful God. Maybe God is a little more like slow motion than action adventure. A patiently waiting sort of God, a little quiet behind the scenes, soaring through the sky. It takes a long time to get to know this God. And she goes on and talks about the value that a vulture brings. A vulture is not a malicious killer, a vulture does not kill things, but a vulture eats death. And again, Blue writes, we all need something to eat death, to digest it and rid it of its toxicity. Maybe God is less like a hero bird that swoops in to save the day and more like a vulture who can absorb death and make it clean. Something interesting to think about. Descendants of Jacob trying to take flight out of the nest. Do you remember how I brought you out of Egypt? Do you remember that? Well, now we get to the point in this conversation where we're going to find out what is expected of Israel. Do you remember how I did all of this? Yes, God, we do. Okay, well now here's what I want. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So this is their end of the deal. Do you remember how I did all of this? Now obey me fully. Keep my covenant. Covenant, we're going to unpack that more in future weeks, but it simply means keep the rules of the relationship. Keep up your end of the deal. If you can do this, I'm going to do something miraculous, wonderful, beautiful, unexpected with you, my people. There's a sharp turn here from the rescue God to the now, let's talk about what we're doing for each other God. Walter Brueggemann writes in his commentary on Exodus, it is as though the generous God of Exodus has abruptly become the demanding God of Sinai. And while God's initial rescue is unconditional and without reservation, a sustained relationship with God is one of rigorous demand for covenant. You will be my people. I have rescued you I have pulled you out of Egypt, even though you're grumbling and we're stumbling and we're making our way through the desert, even though none of this has gone down exactly as I, the God of the universe, had planned on you listening to me and executing my orders. and all of that, I have come in and I have rescued you, and now, if you keep your end of the deal, I am going to do something wonderful with you. You are going to be my treasure. And you can read this like favoritism. You're going to be my favorite. Of all the other people in the world, I like you the best. That's not what is happening here. You are going to be my treasure because if you keep the rules of community and covenant, if you keep those rules, you will best represent my heart for the world. Imagine a community that cared for one another the way the God of the Bible wants us to. Justice, mercy, grace, wisdom, listening, support, prayer, care, lavish love. Imagine a community where those things were the priority and the people in that community lived them out. That would be the community that best represented the heart of God. That would be God's favorite community. We're at a time in history where we're still imagining what that could look like. Sadly, the church of Jesus Christ, at least in our nation right now, we still haven't figured this out. It's why some people say the last place I want to go to experience some of those things is church. I'm not likely to find it there. Since the desert at Sinai, us, the people of God, we are the people of God now. We have been trying to figure this thing out. How do we love? How do we listen? How do we keep up our end of that covenant? How do we exist as people who can in community best represent God? We don't have it figured out yet. But God is saying, remember that I rescued you. Listen to this proposal obey me, keep up your end of the deal, do what I am asking you to do, live the way I'm asking you to live, and if you do this, then you will be the best. You will be my treasure. You will be what I promised Abraham, a blessing to all nations. You will be an irresistible community. People will be tripping over themselves. They can't get to be with you all fast enough. You will be a place where those Vultures' bones of death are devoured and life comes from the ground. Scripture tells us then that Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded them to speak. Next week, we'll unpack their response to Moses. In this passage, is a massive pivot in the text. This is a defining moment. I am God, are you with me? And we can finesse this in a myriad of ways, but ultimately, in many ways, it's the same question we're asked today. And yes, we live on this side of the New Testament, and Jesus intervened on our behalf because newsflash, they couldn't figure out how to be the people God wanted them to be. So Jesus was like, okay, I'm gonna take all of that sin and all of that fact that they can't keep up their end of the deal and I'm gonna absorb it and then we're gonna move forward and you are still God's people and we are still gonna to try to figure this out and we're still struggling to figure it out. God is asking us, can you keep up your end of the deal? Can you play by the rules? And I'll close with this. i uh, probably not alone in this. I don't like rules that much. I get that they exist. I mean, little rules, like as a staff person, I'm supposed to wear my name tag every week, and sometimes I'm like, I don't want to. It doesn't match my sweater. I don't want to, wear my, I don't want to play by those rules. And our youngest is learning how to drive. She came home from high school with the rules of the road book. State of Illinois, this is what you got to do. These are the rules. And if you've ever taught a high school kid how to drive, this is fun, isn't it? This is great. And I'm always always pumping the phantom brake on the passenger side. And and I'm like, stop, 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 stop! And um, teaching a a burgeoning driver how to finesse a yellow light is interesting. (laughs) Because as an adult, yellow means hit it. And so when you're driving with your teenager and they come up to a yellow light and you're like thrown back at how fast they want to go, and I'm like, what are you doing? And she's looking at me, she's like, this is what you do! And we're screaming at each other and it's like, ah! And I said, nowhere is there a law that says go really fast on yellow. Why do the rules of the road matter? Why do we all play by these rules? Any of us who drive, you're going to leave here today. You're in an unsaid agreement with everybody else out there. I will not cut you off to the best of my ability. I will not go 80 miles an hour down 294 and decide just to zigzag across lanes. I mean, this happens. This is why traffic accidents happen. But for the most part, we have an unstated agreement with each other. I'm going to play by the rules. Why? I don't want to die. I don't want you to die either. It is good for the community if we play by the rules. (laughs) Now, we worship a God who is a lot more than a cosmic driver's ed teacher, but this is the sort of thing we do all the time in a variety of other places. I'm gonna play by the rule, you're gonna hold up your end of the deal, and the community is going to flourish as a result. We are all going to get wherever we're going. Play by the rules. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says in Matthew five. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You're the light of the world. You're a town built on a hill. People don't put a lamp under a bowl after they light it. You are the people of God. You are a great community. You know what Jesus does later in Matthew chapter five? He unpacks the covenant relationship from this section of Exodus. He starts going through the 10 Commandments do what I'm asking you to do, not so that I can be more powerful, but because you are a community of love and light and hope, you will change the world. Do the things, live the love, be purveyors of abundant grace like I am asking you to do so that we, as the people of God, and we as those who love the world around us can get everybody together where God wants them to go. This is the invitation that God gave Moses and the people of Israel, and it is the same invitation God gives us today. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a God who loves us enough to consider using us for your great purposes in the world. Thank you, God, that you have entered covenant into relationship with us, that you ask us to be your people so that we can be people for others. So teach us how to do that well. Help us listen. Help us grow in wisdom. Help us understand your love for others so that we may know how to keep your covenant. In the name of Jesus, we pray together. Amen.